Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia. Um, I'm joined today by Sarah McDooling, our Kids and YA Category Manager. And our guest today is the author of the Elementals series, uh, of which the most recent book is Battleborn. And that's Amy Kaufman. Welcome, Amy. Hi, thanks for having me back. Oh, yeah. thanks for coming. It feels like we only just last week were talking to you and Jay about um, Aurora Burning and it's like yeah. six weeks later now or something. <laughs> I know, but in a pandemic, what is time? Really? Yeah, time's real. <laughs> no. I keep and saying knowing... that I did something quite recently and then I realise it's just because I don't have any landmarks anymore. Yeah. So nothing's really happened. So I think it was recent, but it was actually ages ago. Well, I was going to say, well, something big has actually happened. You've released um, Battleborn and you're finishing up I, your yes. Elementus trilogy. Yes, yes. Achievement complete. Series done. Oh, and what an ending. Yeah, I, I it, it made was a me tough cry. one to write this book. You know what I'm really proud of is it made my audiobook narrator cry and he had to <gasps> had to take a little moment, collect himself before he came back to try again. Well, I'm I, not surprised. It's a it's a really beautiful book. Um did was this one fully planned out? Like did you know exactly where this would end when you started? No, no, not really. I mean, this was a really, really tough one to write. In not just in terms of content, but also just quite literally. Because uh, I was very pregnant when I wrote this one and <laughs> I got full-on carpal tunnel in both my wrists and oh, could no. not type, like could could barely type a word. And I had to think about how I was going to handle it. And what I did in the end uh, was dictate the whole thing and, and I hired a friend who's a transcript typist to type it for me. So I dictated the whole plot sent it off to her she would type it and then we just stitched it all together and sent it to my editor and I had to say to him look usually the language is really polished before it comes to you uh just don't even think about that when you edit this just think about structure and and I'll handle the the language in my next edit when I will hopefully be able to use my hands and were you able to oh yes by the quite quickly thankfully after my daughter was born I was able to uh (laughs) otherwise the the full-time authoring would be a tricky one but um, no, I. It was interesting because it's not the way I usually write, and it was quite quite tricky to do, and to sort of you couldn't just go back and see what you'd just done. But it also meant that I was able to sort of, I guess, picture what was happening in my head and just talk about it in a way that I don't usually do. I'm usually thinking a lot more about word choice, so it was it was an interesting experience. And so this is by no means the first time you've completed a series, <laughs> but it's the first time that you've completed a series that you wrote solo, correct? That's right. Yeah, it is. So that was certainly a big change, that there was there was no one there to, to help me figure it out. I had to I had to come up with it by myself. But it was, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm really proud of, of how it turned out. I, I struggle to do that a bit. I always... I can always see what I could have done better, but I'm genuinely proud of how this one ended up. So it's a nice feeling. Well, it's a it's just a beautiful series. It's it's lovely. It had, I read the third one and it just gave me so many emotions that I had to go and just reread book one and two because it had been a while. Um oh, between books. Amazing. And she's come to delightful. Like chill this series to me so many times, Amy, like I like. And it's very rare that Sarah. Well, not rare that Sarah does that, but 
When Sarah loves something, she goes into that part <laughs> super hard. So I'm sure like, you know. Hey, do you want to talk I, about this book for five seconds or two hours? It just might. <laughs> I think it's funny because, I mean, all writing to some degree involves vulnerability. I think if you don't show yourself to your reader at some point, then uh, you know, whether they think about it consciously or not, I think they sense that there's no real authenticity there. But this one involved, I, I showed a lot of myself in this series. Oh, that must be why it's so great. Well, no, I mean, I think it is. I do think that there is something in the more vulnerable you make yourself when you write, the more people connect with it. And I have certainly found that throughout other books I've written. The moments when I have gone the closest to what I, I guess, to my own personal experience. So, you know, the closest to you know, my own experiences of grief or my own experiences of falling in love or my own experiences of of fear or or whatever the feeling is, those are the moments that people tend to come up and talk to me about. And this one draws on a lot of my own personal experience, which is a funny thing to say for a book about a bunch of kids (laughs) who can shapeshift into wolves and dragons and (laughs) wave around magical artefacts and attempt not to destroy the world. What an interesting childhood you had. I know. Well, it was wild, let me tell you, at that time we climbed the mountain. But but what it is, though, is, I mean, it's because it's, it's really not a book about that at all. It's it's a series about, you know, questioning all your prejudices and figuring out what did you believe that is not actually a fact. And I, I devoted 10 years of my life to to working and teaching as a mediator. So that was sort of where I lived for all that time. I think that's one of the things that children's literature does so well and there was this ridiculous tweet going around Twitter going like oh Harry Potter taught all these kids to love and like accept other people's differences and I'm like well pretty much all children's literature does that they just couch it in fantasy and it's Mm -hmm. so frustrating when people don't realize that but honestly I think absolutely I'm going to go on record and say that children's literature often does it better than adult literature I don't know I couldn't tell you why it's a big call but yeah I, I oh, believe I think that's a very uncontroversial call. <laughs> I think no, I mean I think that that children's literature, whether it's it's middle grade or young adult, is concerned with who you are and who you want to be and what the choices you're going to make that will what choices you're going to make that will define sort of who you are and what you're about. And it's about how you interact with the world around you and what you decide is important to you in the world around you. And I think adult literature tends, I mean, you know, there, there will certainly, there are books in adult literature that do those things, but they're not about the formation of yourself in the mm. same way that young adult literature is. It might yeah, be about the transformation it. of yourself. But, you I know, agree with that. And I feel yeah. as though when people write for children, they want to write, for the they just want to write to the core of um hope and like because you know you you always hope the best for kids and um you want to equip them with what they need in life and so I think all of that is kind of instilled in the genre in a beautiful way yeah absolutely and I think that's I think very consciously about it and I think it's funny I was I was thinking just earlier today about the fact that I think I go 
I go to my my heart the most strongly in my young adult literature. It's where I'm sorry in the young adult in the middle grade literature that I write because it's it's where I'm the most unabashed about the things that I I feel and believe. And those things flow through everything I write. But I think perhaps it's because you know readers who are sort of you know say eight years old to eleven years old don't have any pretense about them. They mm. feel what they feel and they think what they think and they say what they know. And you don't have to you know, you, you don't have to sort of couch it in anything for them. So I think, you know, I, I realise that I sort of meet them there when I write. And I wanted to ask that the overall message in this series is, um, is an important, like, universal message at all times. But your book was released right at a time when it was more important than ever. What was that like? Oh... Um, I don't know. I I tend to think that like whenever I write something, I I try not to write first of all and say with with a message in mind because I think Mm -hmm. that anything you write that's sort of intended to preach or deliver a message is inevitably going to, I don't know, feel feel preachy and like it's delivering a message and no one's up for that. And I often don't actually know what I'm writing about until I'm writing it Mm and until I've written it. Yeah. Um, Certainly with this series, I handed it in to my editor and when when he came back to me, he said, oh, this is so cool. So you're writing a political activism series. Like, <laughs> I'm what now? And, and I was genuinely surprised. And he doesn't he read said, like that. <laughs> no, but he said, well, you know, book one is a lot about, you know, the importance of, of involving yourself and stepping up and adding your voice to the chorus. And then step two is, you know, book two is sort of about the importance of as an individual taking action. And then book three, you know, from from what you're telling me is sort of going to be about the fact that we actually can't finally reach solutions unless we involve all sides of of any debate and and all parties in crafting that solution. And I sort of looked at him and he's like, you know, that's the journey you go on with political activism. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) That was. Oh, I, it's it's interesting to hear the series broken down like that because of course all of that is true, but it's also just this charming, like wonder-filled story about these two, this brother and sister and their friends and the world they live in and how and the adventures they have. It's so. I love your cast of characters in this book. I feel like thank you. They're so lovable. I just dearly, dearly want it to be turned into an animated series Um, I know I mean the thing is that's what I first and foremost want it to be I first and foremost want it to be just a story that people really love reading and if after that they also think oh you know I guess this you know maybe I need to do what the kids did and take a second look at some people and some ideas around me then that's great but I whenever I wasn't sure what to do with writing it I would just go back to the version of me who was, you know, eight, nine, ten years old and used to just love escaping into stories and conjure up that that tingle, that feeling of magic, and then I would write for her. And, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give that to kids who were reading it at that age and I wanted grown-ups who were reading it because heaps of, heaps of adults read these books. I wanted them to go back to that feeling and to have it again. I was thinking when I was reading how this is just going to be such a good series uh, for the parents who are reading chapter by chapter to their kids because 
it's the sort of series the kids will just love. But as an adult reader, it's so heartwarming. Like it's just so like yeah, I never right. know. like you want them to enjoy it as well. Ideally, you don't want you don't want it to be a chore. <laughs> But no, which is tough because I think, you know, there's some, there are some books that the kids love way more than the adults. And that is a great strength that the the kids adore these books. But I think it's good to also have ones that the grown ups really enjoy the co reading. And I do, I get a lot of emails from parents who say that they're co reading the books with their kids. And that's really, it's a really lovely experience. Like they, and they talk about the conversations they've had with their kids as a result of these books. Um, A fantastic New Zealand author uh, called Rachel Craw sent me an email and said that she was reading the book with one of her daughters and the kids are threatened with exile. And she said, what's exile? And so they had this big talk about, I mean, she's a kid, she didn't know. So they had this talk about the idea of being sent away from your home and never allowed to return, which Rachel said till that moment, she'd never really thought about the full horror of it. And, you know, it ended up being a conversation about refugees and people who are displaced and and how hard that is. And, you know, I, I hear from a lot of adults who say, oh, you know, my kids ask me about the pronouns in the book because there's a character who uses mm. they, them instead of he or she. And a lot of them say, oh, my kid asked me about, about why Jai uses those pronouns and we were able to have a great conversation about it. Um, and, That's again, mostly, you know, mostly I just want it to be a wonderful read, but, I'm delighted with that stuff as well. Middle grade writers or readers write to you a lot. They're they way do. more than YA <laughs> writers. Yeah. And they write and they write you these absolutely charming letters, uh, which mostly fall into a few categories. They either say, one, when, when is the next book coming out? Because they're little <laughs> and don't have Google. Uh, or uh, they say, two, uh, will character A and character B be boyfriend and girlfriend when they grow up? It's always the same characters. Uh, or three and this one is the most common one they often write to me and say why does Jai say they or them I don't understand and it's great so I I crafted a a thoughtful email about that uh, along with my sensitivity reader who helped me make sure that I got all my representation right in these books Mm. and and, you know made sure that it was it was well done and I send that back and what I love is that without exception they all email back and go oh okay cool thanks got it Oh, that's, that's so nice. Yeah, the kids also does not right. surprise me, yeah. Kids no, are definitely absolutely. all right. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I sometimes think that, and it, it's this sounds terribly arrogant and is not at all meant to be that way, <laughs> but I often think that a lot of young adult and middle grade writers are writing stuff that is inspired by what, by what they read as kids themselves, but with an air of, here, I fixed it. Now, girls, <laughs> now... You know, and, and I mean, the thing is, that it sounds arrogant because you're implying that you've improved on the original and the original <laughs> was usually some amazing classic. But for a lot of us, you know, we sort of looked at it and went, oh, yeah, cool. But there you are no me. girls or everyone's white or everyone's straight or, you know, it was it, it doesn't look like my world. And so for a lot of us, you know, we're like, oh, no, 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 I loved it. But what if we just added a bit of a helping of what my world looks like, what my community and my family and my friends look like? I love that. I think there's, I think there might be truth in that. We all love things, you know, from our youth that maybe over time the world changes and yeah. that's a good thing. And we change. And yeah. I think, you know, I think your attitude has to be, well, once I know better, I do better. You, you yeah. can't change 
what you, that you can't change a joke that you laughed at once or a book that you read without asking any questions that now seem obvious to you. You can't change mm. the past, but you can change how you handle things in the future. And for me, one of those, one of the ways I do that is by making sure that the kids I know grow up reading books that look like their world. Oh, I want to ask you a question that um, it might be impossible to answer, but <laughs> do you have a favourite character from this series? Um, that- let me think. I mean, the, my, my joke answer would probably be Zacharias because he's obsessed with food and getting his hands <laughs> on everyone's dessert. Like, there's a fair bit of me in that boy. Uh, Are you going to eat that has strong tones of, of, I was going to say young Amy, but really just, you know, Amy Amy at all. Yeah. (laughs) Fundamental part of my personality. Um, But I sort of love them in in different ways for different reasons. I think Anders in a lot of ways is not particularly like me. Certainly at the start, he's not at all like me. And I remember having this moment as I was trying to write book one uh, where what I had wanted to do was explore the experience of the non-dominant twins. You know, his sister, Raina, makes all the decisions and leads them and always has an idea and always has a plan. And when she's suddenly gone and it's up to him to save the day, he's the one who has to come up with the plan. And he's so used to second-guessing himself and he's so used to being afraid of things. And I'm probably more of a rainer. I've always got a plan. I've always got an idea. I'm always like, come with me. We'll do this. doesn't always work, but, you know, I'm, I'm outgoing. And I started to think, I think this guy is just too far from me. I don't know how to write him because it's difficult to write somebody who's, you know, indecisive and uncertain and underconfident without them becoming quite annoying over time. And, mm. you know, because, and the thing is, in real life, those qualities might not be annoying at all. But when you're in fiction and you need the protagonist to drive the story forward, nothing happens if they don't do something. And <laughs> I, I used to go into the city in the before times uh, and meet up with a bunch of friends and and we would write once a week. And I remember I was I was having uh, lunch with a couple of, of other authors with uh, C.S. Picat and Sarah Reese Brennan, who was in Australia at the time. And, you know, we were eating lunch and, and sort of brainstorming and swapping ideas and solving problems. And I was saying to them, you know, I just don't know what to do. And, and I, I don't think I'm the person for this job. And how am I going to handle it? And they sort of both looked at me and, and one of them said, so you'd say you're feeling really underconfident. And I said, yes. And the other one said, so you just don't know what to do. Yes. So you feel like you're just not capable of having a really good idea. I said, yes. And they both kind of looked at each other and looked at me and went, do you think there's something you might channel there? And I went, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I guess he does live in me. And oh, every time so from then on, when I didn't know what to do with the plot, I'd think, oh, my gosh, I'm probably not equipped to write this book. What am I going to do? I'm really, oh, no, I'm never going to do it. And then I go, now what would he do? Okay, great. Off we go. And <laughs> oh. channeling into my own insecurity. So I sort of love Anders because he's my insecurity that that finally – you know, managed to manage to find its way. I love that. He's a very lovable character. I think it's funny. Like I, I, I probably, if asked to describe him, wouldn't have gone with indecisive. But it's it is what he's like. But he's so lovable that you don't really 
think of him that way like you just want him oh, to be I mean, okay like <laughs> forced into many decisions over the course of the series but <laughs> he becomes much better at it as he learns to back himself and learns that you know he's he's got as good a chance as anyone else has of working out what to do and what's going on mm. um you know I mean they all have bits of me they all have bits of me in them they all my characters do uh, one thing that I really loved about um, th- this last book in particular uh, is the way in which you man- managed to really s- slowly, um, believably, put through this idea of a bunch of kids with every reason to sort of be mistrustful of each other, kind of coming together as a group and becoming friends. And, you know, these aren't long books, and yet you managed to, like, uh, put all of that through in the in the space of a short book and I guess I wanted to know was that really difficult like was oh, it- I think that's I mean thank you first of all that's a huge compliment <laughs> uh, I mean the thing is that's that's sort of where I live like I, I spent a decade working as a mediator and teaching mediators and my job day in day out I, I worked at a not-for-profit and headed up a big team of mediators and I would quite often you know, get into a mediation with two people who had been at war for a couple of years now and, you know, could barely speak to each other. And my job was to help them see things from a different point of view and stop what they were doing long enough to really listen and understand and then craft a solution together. And, I mean, you can just strong arm people into doing that. You can just sit them down and point out all of the terrible things that are going to happen if they don't get it together and, and make a deal. But you know, if nothing else, there's an enormous amount of research that tells us that those deals tend to fall over. But also, I mean, you know, trying not to plunge into academic theory here, but there's a huge amount of evidence that shows that the way in which people reach an agreement is actually more important than the agreement that they reach and that they might reach an agreement that's less favourable to them. But if they truly believe it involved being understood and listened to and they got to say their piece and they got to understand what was going on themselves they will be more satisfied with it, not just in the moment, but in the long term. So I'm, I'm in, in short, I'm a conflict resolution theory nerd and, <laughs> and this is what I do. There's, there's a section in chapter two where, sorry, chapter two, book two, where all of the kids are in a classroom together and they, their teacher tells them the story of how the war came to be between the wolves and the dragons and challenges them at every point to say, well, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't this, maybe this wasn't their motivation, maybe they were doing it for this other reason and shows them that there's two sides to every story. And I wrote that thinking that that was really just an exercise for me because I was going to really enjoy it and I thought it was the first thing my editor would tell me to take out and it was the first thing he said he loved. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, which is, you know, when I knew I had the right guy. But it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that you want to be really careful with this stuff because saying we always need to listen to other people and we always need to work with them is not the same as saying every point of view is valid you know there are some things some arguments to which there are not two sides there are some arguments to which there is the side that is science and is correct and the side that is you know hateful or, or bigoted and not every argument is one that you should settle by making sure that everyone really gets to grips with what the other party thinks and, you know, incorporates a bit of it into their own worldview. But there are also a lot of disagreements and debates where humanising the other person and learning more about them really does help. 
And, and I feel like this has turned into a bit of a philosophy conflict no, resolution is, podcast. No, no, I'm so well, into I'm, this. I'm excited about this. I'm very into this, yeah. It's making me good. think of, uh, I'll, be a, I'll say this in a spoiler-free way, but it's making me think of, like, the final sort of few scenes um, in Battleborn, mm. um, which are just amazing. And I love reading, a, I just love reading a series where everything just comes together in this perfect kind of, like, grand way where you feel as though the conclusion just is like the final piece in a whole bunch of dominoes that have been knocked over it's just it's just great but um yeah, it's the the absolute end the epilogue is something I always I knew was going to happen for a very long time that the the epilogue I had in mind from the very beginning it was the ending of book three I had no idea how I was going to achieve it at all or how I was going to make it believable at all and I and I wasn't sure I had for a long time oh I think you nailed it mm. and like are you gonna go back to this world because you intriguingly dropped a few like little talk, uh, mentions of other elementals that didn't really feature very much in this trilogy yeah and it just I mean, that, feels... that was on purpose <laughs> <laughs> that, that was that was to leave the door ajar that was that was just in case because, I mean, at the moment my dance card's pretty full and I've, I've got more, more middle grade coming up already, but I wanted to leave the door open in case I wanted to come back and play in this world. But, I mean, I would have to have an idea and also there are some elementals in this world I would write and some that I wouldn't because, you know, Valen, the, the, play, the island on which this series is set, is sort of very loosely inspired by Iceland. and mm. I, I did a lot of things to make it much more multicultural. Uh, for instance, I gave them a magical arch that goes over the um, entrance to their port, which means that it's always a safe port, even if there's a storm outside. And so that then made it a trading centre, which meant that people came from all over the world, which meant it's not this sort of very homogenous white city. Right. And so I thought really hard about how to make it multicultural. But there are some, there are other elementals that are inspired by other parts of our world who I would not be the right person to write those. I, I right. just, you know, no matter how hard I tried, I don't think that I could appropriately dig into the culture and mythology and, and A, do a really good job and B, be confident that I hadn't, you know, missed the mark in some really disrespectful way. So, mm -hmm. you know, so, some of it might be for other people to write. Um, would you do that? I, would you get, would you be happy with another author coming into your world and writing, potentially writing yeah. a story? I think so. I mean, you know, I it would probably I, I wouldn't love them writing with my characters, but I mean, there are a whole lot of countries and continents in this world, so right I, for fan fiction. Oh yeah. Oh sure. I mean, you know, I'm a fan fiction writer from way back. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I certainly I think that'd be fun if someone else, you know, who was better qualified, took on the um took on the next the next continent or the next country. Oh, I would love if there's more yeah. stories in this world because it's a great place to be. Um, you mentioned your busy dance card. Can we hear a bit about what's coming up? <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, um, a lot. So let me let me think. Uh, the next middle grade thing that is coming up is the World Between Blinks, uh, which is a new middle grade series that I am writing with my friend Ryan Groudon, who is the author of Wolf by Wolf and Invictus and and quite a few of my favourite books. And that one came about. Uh, because one day on Facebook uh, we share a literary agent and our wonderful agent Tracy 
uh, popped up a post about this island that had appeared off the coast of North Carolina. It didn't used to be there and just a combination of sort of tides and sandbars and so on. And suddenly this this big island existed there and there wasn't much on it except, you know, a few plants that were seeding themselves and some driftwood and some whale bones. But it was a land that hadn't been there before and was going to go away again. And she posted up this cool article about it and she said, well, authors, you know what to do. And <laughs> I both went, go on. And she said, no, no, not you two. You're busy. I, I, I meant authors generally speaking. And we said, okay, no problem, Tracy. We'll be good. And then I emailed Ryan and said, but we're writing it, yeah? And she said, oh, yeah. And so <laughs> he went away and we secretly wrote this book over the course of a year uh, to – and, and you know, and presented it to her once we were once we were ready. But what really kicked it off is when we were brainstorming, and Ryan, who lives in South Carolina, said to me, "You know, just near where I live, there's this uh, this lighthouse that's off the coast, and all of the land around it has eroded away, so it just rises up from the ocean now, <laughs> protecting land that isn't a land that doesn't exist anymore." And that's kind of where things began. So the world between blinks is the place where lost cities and lost lost things and lost people go. So, you know, everything from Amelia Earhart to the land that this lighthouse used to be on to the Great Library of Alexandria and one half of George Washington's dentures, which went missing from, <laughs> from the museum, everything's there. And, and this pair of cousins slip through into this world and in order to find their way, well, it's unclear whether they're going to be able to find their way back or not, but they are, in order to do it, they have to, to track down the guy who brought them there. And um, it's sort of, I mean, it's, I guess it's a lot like Elementals in that on on one hand, Elementals is, I hope, you know, a cracking good read. And on the other hand, it is, you know, a meditation on what we have in common with those to whom we are opposed. And mm. The World Between Blinks is, on one hand, a very fun, funny, you know, history nerdy adventure. And on the other hand, it is a meditation on how we sometimes hold on to things that we need to let go to, let go of. And we sometimes let go of things we should have held on to. It's about grief. It's about memories and family and places we've been and and lots of other stuff. So Oh my God. Know, I'm really proud of it. I think I just it's rare that at this point, you know, months out from a book coming out, I look at it and go, mm, nailed it, but really proud of it. How many months? Uh, in Australia, it will be out in February. That's not so, too far. It's not too far, but before <laughs> that, we have another book that we have to get out, uh, which is The Other Side of the Sky, which is coming in September. Oh, and, my gosh. Um, it is, I can't wait. I, I, I can't wait either. It feels like it's been coming forever. And it's it's co-authored uh, with my friend Megan Spooner, with whom I wrote the Starbound trilogy, and it's um it's a science fiction fantasy mashup about a boy who falls from a science fiction city in the sky, and lands in a world below that is ruled by myth and magic and prophecy, and he meets a girl there who is a living goddess and and finds himself a part of one of their prophecies, and he wants to get home and she wants to save her world and, and slowly something begins to grow between them and they begin to realise that if one of them gets what they want, the other one might lose everything. And, of course, they can't touch at all. It's forbidden by by prophecy and by their magic. So there's a lot of very Jane Austen-esque looking oh and longing God. as well. 
The can't oh, touch thing. Favorite, the, the long distance <laughs> yearning. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So it's, you know, it's, it's, and again, you know, on one hand, it's a really page turny, pacey adventure. And on the other hand, it is, it is a meditation on where the line lies between having faith and needing proof and where, where the line is between sort of logic and belief and where, what, to which, to which side of the scale you should tip. So as we are here podcasting about your second book release of the year, right? <laughs> yeah. This is that will be the third. That and then the shortly third. after that, very new in the new year will be um The World Between Blinks. Between Blinks. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Like yes. I don't know how I don't know how you do it, but also I could listen to you talking about your upcoming books endlessly. Like I just feel like <laughs> literally all day. I just feel like the second you start outlaying it, it's like suddenly I'm sitting beside a fire and the storyteller is listening. And I just want you to keep going and going. <laughs> well, I mean, it's what I do. But I mean, the thing well, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. I think if you're going to spend a hundred thousand words with something, you know, you better know what you're doing. You better know what you're trying to say, and you better know how you're trying to say it because you're actually asking a lot of a reader. You're asking, you know, even even if it's Battleborn, which is, you know, I think 55,000 words, you're asking a lot of your reader. You're asking them for their time and their attention and you're asking them to invest their emotions. And, you know, in some cases you're asking them for their money to buy the book. And <laughs> I think, well, that's not nothing though. You know, books aren't, books aren't cheap. And mm. I think that you need to be really respectful of it. You know, you you have a compact with the reader that, if they give you their time and their attention and their focus and, you know, enough investment that they will feel what you're trying to help them feel, you need to promise them that you're going to do a good job and you need to promise them that, that it will be worth what they have given to you. So, so I mean, I, I don't get to do this without my readers. Without my readers, I'm, I'm back in my old, old day job, which I loved, but I don't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't get to tell stories, you know, apart from, from to my friends. I, I don't get to do any of this. So I think, you know, treating my readers with the respect that they that they deserve is is pretty high on the list. Well, I've never read anything that you've written that doesn't deliver on that promise, including beautiful no. Battleborn. <laughs> oh, beautiful Battleborn. I do, I genuinely do do love that series. And I'm also really proud, this is a weird one, but I'm not because I didn't illustrate it, but I'm really proud of the cover. Of, it's of these funny. well it's gorgeous they are yeah. beautiful um this is what makes me want it to be an animated series because you look at the the cover and it honestly feels like at any moment they might start moving right and i mean i had very little to do with them in, in concept or artist selection or or really anything uh all i was really doing was was giving feedback on on how the characters looked occasionally uh and you know my my editor and my cover designer and my cover artist all into making sure that, that the covers, you know, were properly representative and did look like the characters. So I, I think it could make a great graphic novel. Like oh, my you God. Were, you could adapt yeah. it into that form as well. I mean, well. let's it also, you really know, let's cool. radio play and then mm, the whole works, please. Stage play. <laughs> You're right. I think oh, you'd make I Sarah very think. happy. Well, it would. And it's such a the, – the, I don't know. It's, I always I always struggle how to really um, say this, but it's like visually like 
the visuals in this book that are played out in your imagination are just beautiful. Like imagining the dragons and imagining the ice walls, it's just, and all the places. Like, I want to see it. I've seen it in my head. Now I want to see it. You see it for real, elsewhere. right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's funny because in middle grade, you have far less latitude when it comes to describing things. I think in, in YA or in adult, you can um, you can take a little more time and the reader will come with you. But if you are describing something to a nine-year-old, like, get on it, son. They're not going <laughs> to stick around for half a page of you telling them, you know, about the sunlight like dappling through the trees in a playful whatever like that's that's not how they how they roll so I think the way I try and approach that is I try to have a really really clear vision in my head of what it looks like like down to a a real level of detail and then I try and think what is the thing you think you need to know about this in order for you to be able to fill it in and I think that's where when when I very first signed up for this series um, my editor said to me jokingly you know oh you're going to go to Iceland and in that moment, a spark entered me, and, 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 it, and I did. And I think it really is, you know, I think it's all over the pages. You can see it. I think you truly can. And I wanted, I feel 100% absolutely free to say, no, Sarah, I don't want to discuss that because that's a spoiler. But um, <laughs> the title of this book is somewhat explained late in the story Yes. in a way that made me cry. And is that, is that something that you talk about or do you just want readers to get there themselves? Look, I mean, I think mostly I want readers to get there themselves, yeah. but it is, you know, I mean, the, the part that you're talking about is, you know, a part that talks about the idea that, you know, strong things get forged through conflict and strong things get forged through hard times and that, I haven't really tried to put this into words before, but that, but that having been forged under pressure, you know, and and put together from from different component parts, you know, makes you stronger. You don't have to show up perfect first time. Yeah. And there's strength and beauty in that. I, I think there's more strength and beauty in it. I don't think any of us show up perfect first time. Yeah. Oh, Amy, I love talking to you about your book. <laughs> I, I think if I let you go, you would just keep Oh, yeah, I'm not ending this, Liv. You're going to have to end it. Okay, I'm, I'm going to have to stop Wrap us up. I think, I think that is all we have time for today. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you so much for coming to chat to us, or not coming, but sitting in your living room, I presume, and chatting to us about Elementals and Battleborn. Um, this has been a great chat, and we really appreciate you. I'm looking forward to the day when we can all do it properly in person again. (gasps) Won't that be nice? Won't that be be nice? nice. It will be so nice. (laughs) A return to the before times. (laughs) (laughs) If nothing, I mean, if nothing else, it will it will involve leaving my house. But you know, (laughs) that's that'll be a thing. That's the dream. (laughs) What we wait for. The dream. But thank you for having me. No, it was our pleasure. pleasure. And if you're listening at home, you can grab your copy of Battleborn and all of the books in the Elementals trilogy from Booktopia. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. 
Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.